0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, a stolen healthcare record that's way harder to track than you might think. We'll tell you all the hottest tools security pros have got to have and then blame why it's the new cybersecurity hot product. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 213 of Jupiter Broadcasting's Weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. We stream this episode live on May 7th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors: DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live streamer—that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. It's good to have you back home again because it's been a week. I missed you, Alan. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it's been two weeks, basically. Yeah,
0: technically, yeah. See, Alan was in studio for Linux Fest. We pre-recorded two episodes, and then we took a week off. And even though we've done this for like 212 weeks, I still woke up this morning. I was like, I wonder if I remember how to text snap. Because I haven't done it for a week I'm like, okay, yeah okay, I got yeah, okay, I think I got it And then, you know, you sit down in the chair, you go to the show it's It all comes together again, Alan It's like old yeah. times Maybe part of what makes me feel at home is our first story It is a big, big show this week We have lots in the roundup, lots in the feedback, lots to cover So it's nice to start somewhere familiar with Mr. Brian Krebs And Krebs on yes. Security What is our first story, Mr. Jude? <laughs> Our first story is actually from a little while ago. It's been on my queue since
1: like the day after uh, we were double recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a day in the life of a stolen healthcare record. <laughs> okay. So uh, you know, with Krebs before, we've looked at what happens with a stolen credit card and how they get out to the internet and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one has uh, you know, so when your credit card gets stolen. Uh, Because a merchant you did business with got hacked, it's usually quite easy for the investigators to figure out which company was victimized, right? You look at the people with the stolen credit cards. Where did they shop in common? Oh, look, it was only this one or two places. It makes it fairly easy to narrow it down. Target or whatever. Yeah. Uh, The process of dividing the provenance of a stolen healthcare record that's a lot harder because the records typically are processed and handled by lots of different third-party firms, most of which have no direct relationship with the patient
0: or the customer who's ultimately harmed. Hmm. I hadn't. Oh, hello, Alan. There you go. I miss you already. <laughs> there you go. You're back. Uh, just, Hold on. Yeah, sky- just, wait, just wait for it. And I got you. You're good. Oh, uh, uh-huh. Your Skype got all a little funky on me, and I, I lost you for a minute, but you're back now. Okay. Yeah.
1: So, okay. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so because with healthcare records, they actually go through a bunch of intermediary parties yeah. and all kinds of craziness. Yeah. Uh, you can't, just because you know the patient that was victimized, which hospital they went to, doesn't mean you know what other people the data went through and where it might have been stolen. Right.
0: Yeah, that seems like uh, it could be extremely you know, complicated.
1: Eventually, he right? ends up at their insurance company, and there's probably some places in between, and then there's it's just all over the place. Uh, so, uh, Krebs says he was reminded of this last month after receiving a tip from a source at a cyber intelligence firm based in California hmm. uh, who wanted to remain anonymous. Hmm. His source uh, discovered a seller on the darknet marketplace called Alphabay uh, who was uh, posting stolen healthcare data uh, in a subsection of the market called random database dumps or random database ripoffs. I like
0: this. Come here. Look for just any random database from different places and buy it.
1: Yep. Uh, So, uh, you know, eventually the same fraudster also leaked a large text file titled uh, Tenant Health Hilton Medical Center. Okay. Probably the name of a hospital or something. uh, Which contained the name, address, social security number, and a bunch of other sensitive information about uh, dozens of physicians across the country. So it was actually having the doctor's uh, details rather than the patient's in this case. (laughs) Uh, When contacted by uh, Krebs, the tenant Health Company said that the data was not stolen from their databases, but rather from a company called Encompass Healthcare. Uh, It turns out that Encompass had disclosed the breach back in August 2014, uh, which reportedly occurred after a subcontractor for one of the company's service providers, so not Encompass itself, but somebody they outsourced to, who then outsources to a contractor? Mm. The contractor failed to secure a computer uh, server containing account information. This affected the um, so the company that ended up being affected was called 24 on Physicians, which I'm guessing is you know 24-hour on-call kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so eventually, there's some other company over here that their contractor didn't secure one of their servers, and somebody stole the data. Hmm. The breach affected approximately 10,000 patients treated at 29 different facilities Ooh. throughout the U.S. Okay, and approximately 40 different physicians had their data stolen as well. All right, hmm. 10,000. Uh, somebody patients. who works for the sub, uh, so so who was the subcontractor that leaked the data? Yeah, according to uh, PHI privacy, uh, and now confirmed by the Encompass company, mm-hmm. the subcontractor was responsible from a company called PST Services. Uh, which is a subsidiary of the company called McKesson, which apparently is really big. Oh, uh, yeah, McKesson's provide, huge. Yeah, and they provide medical billing services. Yeah, a lot uh, of my clients worked with McKesson. Yeah. The funny one is, uh, it turns out what they did by, you know, the contractor failed to secure the server or whatever, uh, they left more than 10,000 patients' information exposed via Google search for over four months. So stop and think about that for a minute. <laughs> The information must have just been laying around on their website or something hmm. uh for people to be able to find it via Google search.
0: Yeah, indexable. I mean it had to be indexable by the bot. Yeah. So. And probably had a
1: link to it from somewhere in the first place. Or huh. you know,
0: yeah, it'd either and, have to be linked or how else could if it's not linked it have to well, be sitting you, in a text.
1: Well, if you format. if you go to a directory and it does auto index and the files are there. Well, Google
0: auto index PDFs and things like that too? Yep. Okay. Google definitely reads uh, PDFs. Yeah, I mean, but I think this was an Excel document or something. hmm. Probably. Hmm. I guess file names would be enough.
1: Yeah, but so so why was this file just laying
0: around on a website? Like, there's failing to secure a server, and then there's the information was just posted. Right. You wonder though, is it like a a SharePoint server that somehow got connected to the web or something weird? There's like an sounds like something like that. But
1: then SharePoint is supposed to be connected to the web, so you can work on it from home. Or something. Yeah, 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 and maybe that's what but, happened.
0: I mean, who, who knows? knows? I wish they would give us details on these kinds of things because it's exactly, yeah. this is the bit, a little bit of details that would make a big difference for a lot of people implementing this technology. Exactly. You know,
1: oh, failed to secure the server. Oh, well, I secured my server, so it won't happen to me. Turns out, not exactly what they meant. Uh, but at the same time, they don't want to look like they're completely, ret- oh, we accidentally posted it publicly on our website, like we're AT&T or something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I remember that. Uh, but anyway, uh, so Still, not all breaches involve health information are difficult to backtrace to the source, right? Back in September, uh, Krebs discovered a fraudster on the now defunct uh, Evolution Market, uh, which is a dark web community, uh, was selling life insurance records for $7 a apiece. Uh, that breach was fairly easily tied back to Touchmark, the insurance holding company, uh, you know, because the name of the company's subsidiary is plastered all over the stolen records. <laughs> And all the records listed the applicant's medical histories. So it was actually their whole insurance application, which included all their health data, but all the other information as well. Wow. And that's what got stolen. And you say, you know, health records are huge targets for fraudsters because they typically contain all the information the thieves would need to conduct mischief in the victim's name, right? You wouldn't, th- you're like, health records. Well, there, there's not that much use to me, right? What do I need to know what medication you're on? Identity you know? theft, though, I right? I guess if I'm going after very specific people, maybe. But yes, uh, your medical record says everything you need to do identity theft.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, from the fraudsters opening new lines of credit to filing phony sac- uh, tax returns or requests for internal revenue service data, you know, they can get all kinds of information about you. You know, Last year, a great many physicians at multiple states came forward to say they'd apparently been targeted by tax refund fraudsters, hmm. and they couldn't figure out how their data had been leaked online. Well, maybe they were the, some of those I doctors mean, that had their
0: yeah, information stolen. So this is, this is bad from a customer privacy standpoint and all of that, but this is also um, HIPAA violations up the wazoo. This is yep. the definition of a HIPAA violation.
1: Yep. Uh, and a bunch of other issues and problems. Kind of come out that you know, as we've talked about before, a stolen credit card is only really worth a few dollars. You know, mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes you only a, a couple of dollars a piece, maybe 10 or 15 if they're like high end corporate cards, there's really large limits or something. But healthcare records often sell for a hundred dollars or more, yeah, because they have everything you need to you know go and take out a line right. of credit on the person for you know. Ten thousand dollars or something. An identity and identity so, is
0: so much more valuable than a limited time, limited use credit card.
1: Exactly, because the credit card can be canceled easily. Your yeah. identity cannot be canceled easily.
0: <laughs> huh. Ouch.
1: Yeah. Uh, so sensitive stolen data uh, posted on cybercrime forums can rapidly spread to miscreants and ne'er do wells all around the globe. Ooh, I like that one. So this company called uh, Bitglass did a uh, experiment conducted uh, earlier this month. And what they did is they made up uh, 1,500 fake names, social security numbers, credit card numbers, addresses, phone numbers, and all that, and saved them in an Excel document. The spreadsheet was then uh, transmitted to the company's proxy, which automatically watermarks the file in such a way that even copying and pasting data out of it will keep the watermark. Uh, The researchers set it up so that each time the file was opened, the persistent watermark, uh, which they say will even... uh, you know, survive to file manipulation. We'd call home and, and record view information such as the IP address, the location, and the device type that the person opened it on. Interesting that you can uh, infect an Excel document such as it calls home like that. Mm-hmm. Eh? Is that a macro, uh, you think? Probably. Uh, a little bit of that and some other stuff. Um, so the company posted uh, the spreadsheet uh, full of manufacturer identities anonymously to some cybercrime marketplaces on the dark web. Uh, They say the result was that in less than two weeks, the file had traveled to 22 different countries on five different continents and was accessed more than 1,100 times. Hmm. They say, additionally, the time, location, and IP address analysis uncovered a high rate of activity among two small groups or two uh, specific groups in similar areas with similar viewers, including, uh, they say, that kind of leads to the possibility that there were two different cybercrime syndicates that were passing this file around internally. Because we saw, you know, a bunch of people in the same area yeah. uh, or same network or whatever Moving passing it around, around mm-hmm. so that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, mm-hmm. the Russian mafia or some Nigerian group are getting a hold of this fake information. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting to watch the stuff.
0: Yeah. As a neat experiment they did. Mm-hmm. That gives us some good insight. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I I guess on the face of it, I always considered health records and financial records sort of equivalency. I knew better though, you know. Yep. I knew better, but just on the face of it, I never really thought beyond the, that that top layer of it. And uh, I, but specifically, not just because it's an identity—that's kind of obvious. Uh, The part that I never really gave a lot of consideration to is how much harder it is to track because, obviously, like you said with the financial records, okay, well, these amount of people all bought from the same store, ergo, that's where the breach occurred. Not nearly as easy with health records because you have data brokers, you have independent contractors, you have different uh, offices. Almost
1: every hospital
0: doesn't do the billing
1: themselves. They have a billing company. Yeah. And then, you know, often that
0: billing company then has to feed to a bunch of different insurance companies. And it's it's even transcriptions. You know, there's transcriptionists that have the records. Those are off-site contractors. Contractors very often it's yep. huge the data just gets all over the place yeah. and we actually have another story about that uh later in the show there you go all right mr julian other thoughts on that particular yep, that's story good it for that one all right well then i'll take a moment and tell you about our sponsor ting go to techsnap.ting.com won't you hey everybody in the chat room go there right now and help support the TechSnap program and check them out techsnap.ting.com that'll save you 25 dollars over a ting off your first device or $25 service credit, too. Now, what is Ting? You say, well, why why do I want to save $25? Ting is mobile that truly makes sense. Ting is on a mission to change the industry. There's really a duopoly in the U.S. market right now between two people or two companies that uh, really have no interest for the consumer. They are truly out there to... Just squeeze every single penny out of your text, your data, your calls, make you pay for these inorbitate amounts of minutes just in case you might use them, these crazy amounts of text just in case you might use them, this huge batch of data just in case you might need that because maybe one week you're going to have a heavy week, one month you're going to have a heavy month. Those, it's, just, it's a scam. And so Ting really cares about that. That's why Ting's doing it differently. No contracts, no termination fees, and you only pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line. You buy your device, yeah. unlocked, you own it outli- outright. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll save $25 off your first device, and they've got some great devices. Uh, you can get a GSM or CDMA SIM card if you already have a device and you just want to use it. They have feature phones like the Kyocera Duro at uh, $47 with a TechSnap discount. The Moto G, $91. These are unlocked. You own them. The iPhone That's 4, the, the MiFi. Is yeah?
1: It, it, that also makes a big difference.
0: I think so because the, uh, on the face well, of it, that, it seems like you're paying more for the device. But uh, <laughs> what I have found is the devices that I own that are unlocked, I can continue to repurpose them for different tasks because they're not like, locked into a, a carrier that I no longer use. They just have data and I just pay for that data when I use it. So, like, I have a collection of devices now that I continue to use, like, either for, like, Ubuntu Touch testing or Sailfish OS or different tasks, like even, like, accessing them as, like, a MiFi device or something for my kids to play. So, in the past, I would get, like, a subsidized phone and I would be able to use it for as long as I had that contract or that carrier. And then when I was done, that phone just sat in a drawer or I had to sell it for some, like, trivial amount of money. But now, with Ting, I I actually continue to get value out of the devices much longer I would well, have beforehand that's why the I think is, Unlocked is important
1: when, when you're subsidizing the phone you're basically paying the company you're subsidizing from interest right. right as you're doing it yeah and that is obviously going to cost you you know that's more money you're paying and a lot of times like if you look at your really phone company it's like oh well if you want that phone you know you have to have a contract with us for three two or three years yeah. that has a minimum of $50 a month yeah otherwise we're not going to make the money back for the phone quick enough right it's like well you know, if I just own the phone, then you know, if like I, I own my front, computer, I'd actually like, save yeah.
0: huge amounts of money. Just say, phones are computers now. Just like you own your computer, yeah. you want to own your phone. And look, uh, it's not that expensive. iPhone 5C. If you want to get a decent iPhone, 500. Or I'm sorry, 500. 252 dollars. Uh, the One Plus. Go to techsnap.team.com. Take 25 dollars off the One Plus. Uh, they have the Sharp Aquos. They have the iPhone 6. They have the Nexus 6. The HTC One. The Moto X2 own the moto x2 rocket on the ting network they have gsm cdma to choose from it is great go to techsnap.ting.com check them out you can also try that savings calculator if you've got a couple of phones you're going to save a lot of money because it's just six dollars for the line and then you pay for what you use i've got three smartphones three smartphones on one account and i'm paying like 40 dollars a month or usually it's like 37 dollars a month even techsnap.ting.com go try them out no hold customer service an incredible dashboard and all the features you'd expect, including hotspot and tethering, techsnap.ting.com. And a big thanks to Tink for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Alan. So I wanted to talk about uh, the security pros and their must-have tools. We actually got quite a good feedback when we talked about getting into the InfoSec industry, including the author mm-hmm. who wrote the piece contacted us. Uh, so kind of along the same lines, now we have one about great must-have tools. Do you agree with this list? I assume yeah. you must. No. <laughs> no. Uh, well, yeah, I kind of... Uh
1: so, I saw the, the news article and the headline. and I was like, oh, that'll be great. Put it in this show. And then, and then you then reviewed after it. After I finished writing it at the <laughs> end. So, uh, you know, I wasn't going to spoil that till the end. So oh, I'm let's sorry. Just go through
0: it in the way I've, I've uh, written <laughs> it here. You should have teased me. Because like, I'm, I'm thinking, well, if Alan put this in here, You he must think this is a pretty good set of tools. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was hoping when I started. But,
1: <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, let's, let's I'll talk sit about back it a and bit. listen. So, uh, Network World uh, have posted an article called Security Pros Name Their Must Have Tools. Mm hmm. Uh, and so, you know, they went and talked to a bunch of people around the industry and asked them what are the, the security tools that they love and they absolutely must have, right? I was expecting a bunch of like, you know, testing and penetration and vulnerability analysis. Yeah, kind Metasploit of tools. and Map. Yeah. Uh, that's not what I got. Uh, so, Lawyers Without Borders, uh, they I'm love their app called Intralinks Via, which is uh, an application that allow them to securely share files and uh, revoke access. Uh, to people when they shouldn't have access to the files anymore. Doesn't really explain how that app stops somebody from downloading the file and having it anyway, but uh, that one actually seems fairly useful, right? If you're you're somebody that has to share data like Lawyers Without Borders and you need some system for that, this application might be good. Hmm. They don't really mention if it costs a lot of money or what, but the Lawyers Without Borders is a nonprofit, so who knows. Uh, But then it kind of went downhill after that. Okay. So Yell.com, which is some yellow page site I've never heard of, (laughs) they use a tool from Distil Networks uh, that does bot detection and mitigation services. So I guess this is a service, not a tool. Uh, And basically, they use it on their website to stop uh, bots from scraping all the content and making their own version of the site. right? Because basically, the whole point of this Yell.com site is their big database and so they don't want it being scraped and stolen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they detect the bots. And also it helps avoid the excess load that the bots would cause by scraping all the pages. Uh, and then SureScript.com, uh, which I kind of thought was going to be one of those sites that was selling like PHP scripts or something, but is actually an online prescription service. They use Invincia Freespace Enterprise. Okay. Uh, which is endpoint security. It basically it okay. stops advanced uh, end-user attacks like spear phishing, drive-by downloads, etc., and contains them and stops uh, their machines from getting infected and having those infections spread. Okay. So it's an application you run on the, on the desktop machines, and it stops your secretary from opening that uh, virus. Apparently. I don't know how well it works, but uh, SureScripts.com, the online pharmacy, swears by this tool. So it must be good. Mm. Uh, Then a biotechnology company, they use uh, EMC's Syncplicity, which allows them to secure and distribute content to mobile devices. Uh, Their uh, CTO says, it's an amazing mobile app that offers a great user experience and also offers the security and control we need uh, as a a biotherapeutics company with lots of sensitive information. Hmm. It's like, yes. So EMC makes this application that they then use to share sensitive data to people's cell phones. Uh, They then talk about uh, people being able to work on one device and then switch to another device, and so on. And while I can see that being useful for business data and stuff, for sensitive information, although maybe they mean sensitive information in the form of technology and patents and stuff like that, that, say, the Chinese or other companies would be trying to steal, rather than patient data or something. Okay. Because I, I, I definitely don't think you would want the patient data just floating around, being able to hop from device to device. <laughs> no, it must be like business dev stuff. Hopefully. And they're just you know, wanting to keep that away from their competitors. Sure. Okay. Maybe that makes sense.
0: Sometimes paranoia say. pays off. Yep. Then
1: uh, a private health insurance uh, software application provider. So they're not a health insurance company. They're not a health insurance software company. They're a health insurance application provider company. Like an API gateway, they say. Well, uh, no, but they so they provide some API, and then they use I see I a see. software called Forum Sentry API, API Gateway. I gotcha. Which I'm guessing originally the software was designed to protect forums from spam, and now apparently they've written a thing to protect APIs. Uh, but yeah, it prevents uh, bad people from using the API and stealing data with it or something.
0: Man, so all says, these businesses got linked to in this article. This is like a money-making article for these guys, or something.
1: Yeah. Uh, Forum Sentry enables us to uh, securely expose our API to our private health insurance funds, third parties, and internal clients, and has provided a policy-based platform that is easy to maintain and extend, all while reducing our development time and resource requirements. Hmm, Okay. All right. Then uh, Firehouse Subs, which is a uh, large restaurant chain, they use NetSurian uh, managed PCI. Uh, hold on, this is a sandwich shop PCI. now? Yes. Uh, it's a sandwich shop that has like 900 stores. Okay. And so they use this managed PCI thing to manage their uh, payment card industry data security standard compliance. They say NetSurian simplifies PCI for myself and all of our franchisees, allowing us to uh, maintain focus on our other portions of our business, which is making sandwiches. <laughs>
0: I have a theory about all of this. I'll let you continue. Though. Yes,
1: uh, I'm almost done. Yeah. Uh, then there's a software vendor that makes heavy use of software as a service. OK. Uh, and so they rely on a software as a service sure. called Adderloom for SaaS <laughs> to monitor and provide visibility into and protection of their SaaS applications. I think I got a new business
0: idea for Scale Engine, Alan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then the Iowa Vocational Rehabilitation Services Center Okay. Uh, raved about the configurability and reliability of NCP's enterprise VPN solution
0: oh uh, NCP's enterprise VPN solution's gotta be solid yeah. enterprise remote access designed for scalability in organizations with more than 50 remote users based on more than 25 years of remote access experience yeah Yeah, that, that means it's the good dial-up. <laughs> based on 25 years of remote access experience means it's based on some good stuff yeah. So,
1: uh, here's the part I was going to do. Uh, I'm very sorry. When I started writing this news item for TechSnap, I thought the list was going to be useful. <laughs> these were not the kinds of tools I was expecting, and these were not the kind of security pros I was expecting. No. Uh, you know, instead, it just shows... a. Uh, A random reporter who knows nothing about cybersecurity asking a bunch of random businesses who know nothing about cybersecurity uh, that just buy magic software and services to
0: solve cybersecurity. That was exactly my takeaway, too. Word for word, what I would have almost said, it feels like these are like almost blame deferral packages or let's call them um, bureaucracy blame-deferral management platforms, something something that's like, (laughs) here's a thing that we know is a boogeyman, and here's the thing that we can say we're buying to accommodate for said boogeyman, and now we've mitigated our risks and we've done our job as bureaucrats. That's definitely blame-as-a-service. Yeah. Uh, So if your approach to
1: cybersecurity is buy some magic software, uh, then you're kind of in trouble. Right, cybersecurity is a mindset, you know, we need defense in depth, blah blah blah. let me say that all the time. It's continuing education, ah, it's following
0: yes. news stories, it's watching the it's you know what, it's, it's a being aware of It's Doing trend. as much as can be done,
1: but yeah. more importantly, planning for when everything you've done isn't enough. Huge part of it. That's the big difference, right? Uh what you really need is cybersecurity disaster kit, right? Like the one you're supposed to have in your house that has like batteries <laughs> yeah. and a flashlight. Or like your and zombie survival kit, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, your zombie survival kit, whatever you want. Um you know, That's a good th- point. The one you have for the event of natural disaster or zombies. Yeah, uh, and, and all it, the things you need to
0: dis- <clears throat> that you will need in order to survive until the mess can be cleaned up. Yeah, ask yourself. If it, ha- if it hap- happens, what's, what am I going to do to keep us running? Because you're not going to be able to use the production systems that have been compromised. Right. It's, a, it's going to be
1: an emergency. What we need is like a checklist and a to-do list and a contact how list. Can you,
0: and yeah, and how are you going to be able to play back what's happened? What's going to be your exactly. trail, your audit trail to figure out what happened and where you've been compromised and how bad the damage is done and what's been taken? Yeah. You know, it's like, all right,
1: we've just found something hickeys
0: going on. We need to freeze this, turn this off. Right. Oh, there you go. So, like, what's going on with the Skype connection? I will mention our next sponsor. I'll Give us a second to let his uh, Skype uh, connection stabilize out. So, of course, that is DigitalOcean. You know, when I think about building a cybersecurity infrastructure, I think DigitalOcean actually could play a role on that. I've thought about this before, like, for reporting and analysis tools. DigitalOcean is perfect for this. You could spin up a droplet super fast, and with Docker, you could deploy something in a container and just keep that up to date back at your own local office, you know, keep your tools, your new analysis software packages in there, and then deploy that up to a container up on docker i mean why not because you can get started in less than 55 seconds and pricing plans start only five dollars a month now are you familiar with DigitalOcean? they're pretty awesome they're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server you can get started in less than 55 seconds think about that you can spin up a cloud server uh, that blows my mind that you can get going and and honestly some people do it in like 30 seconds the the pricing though is nuts five dollars a month that'll get you 512 megabytes of ram 512 megabytes of RAM in Linux these days is amazing how much you can get done with that. But to do that right, you've also got to have really great I.O. So they've got a 20 gigabyte SSD. They're SSDs throughout. They've got blazing fast CPUs and then a terabyte of transfer connected to tier one bandwidth at fantastic data centers in New York. They've got data centers in San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, Germany and London. So they've got that covered And then they have an amazing interface to manage all of it. They've built it on top of these great SSD drives, right? So that's huge. They've done a really good job there. They've used Linux technology that I think is the best technology out there for virtualization. I love that. Now, they've built it all around this management interface to control it. This is truly slick. I think this is sort of their secret sauce that everybody else is trying to figure out, but DigitalOcean's still got it figured out. Go over there and try this. Use our promo code. Snap Ocean just to try this part. Snap Ocean will give you a ten dollar credit. You can try it out two months absolutely for free. SnapOcean over at digitalocean.com. Go try out their slick interface. It really is intuitive. And you can replicate this interface on a larger scale with DigitalOcean's straightforward API, which means it's very easy to snap it in with your existing management infrastructure or any apps. In the Arch user repository, there's already uh Uh, like uh, a droplet uh, management applet that you can install. There's also a PPA available for Ubuntu, so you can just control these right from your Linux desktop, Windows desktop, macOS desktop, smartphones, all this stuff because this API is so great. In fact, they just revved it. The community writes a ton of great stuff. There's also tons of awesome documentation that make taking advantage of DigitalOcean Droplet really straightforward. Go over to DigitalOcean and spin something up. They have FreeBSD, CoreOS, CentOS, uh, Ubuntu. They have lots of different choices. You can do something that has like the whole lamp stack ready to go, or you can do something that's just a bare metal machine. You get HTML5 console access, so you can watch that thing from post all the way up to boot with, uh, you know, honestly, I think one of the slickest uh, HTML5 consoles, the whole dang thing's written in Go, which is awesome. And you can just see right there. You go in there, you can manage it. Uh, so it's great, too, for uh, setting up like a remote workstations and getting access to that and troubleshooting It's perfect for that kind of thing. So many different things you can try. With a $10 credit, you can try it two months for free. So use the promo code SNAPOCEAN. Try out DigitalOcean. See what we've been talking about. Even get a good opportunity to try out FreeBS Day. I mean, why not? They've got it now, and they've got great tutorials to take advantage of it. SNAPOcean's that promo code. And a huge thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring. The TechSnap program. All right, Mr. Jude, well, you're back just in time to bust uh, bust down some really slick-looking new Intel Xeon processors. Is that where we're going next? Yes.
1: All righty, sir. Uh, so when I saw the story, I just had to cover it because I know we all love our hardware porn.
0: Well, and I, I love to fantasize about, like, what I could build in the near-term future. Like, if I was just going to yeah. have at it, what would I do with this? So this is what's yeah. always great. <coughs> so Intel's
1: announced this new line of uh,
0: E7s, uh, the E7v3,
1: which is basically the Haswell ex line of processors so it's like the extreme edition versions for desktop uh, so they have the E7 8800 and E7 4800 line of processors uh, these include 20% more cores and threads than previous uh, and 20% more uh, last level cache as well hmm. uh, they actually have uh, benchmarks there from uh, hothardware.com showing actually getting 15-20% to 20% performance gains oh, over really? the old V2s okay. as well I'll dig around uh, they also, uh, the interesting thing is with these ones, uh, instead of the RAM being directly on the motherboard, RAM is uh, connected card? via these uh, scalable memory buffers, they're called. What? Looks like a daughterboard. Yeah, it is. And you can buy the C1, uh, C112 or C114, and that basically means the system can support either DDR3 or DDR4. So you decide whether you want the cheaper memory or the, higher, the faster memory. Oh, there we go. Uh, You can't use them at the same time, but you can
0: you can buy either
1: type of RAM. That's actually really
0: nice since the faster memory is very expensive right now.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, And the great part is you get one point five gigabytes, or sorry, one point five terabytes of RAM per socket. Uh, So since these are four and eight socket scalable processors, that means that if you have four sockets on your motherboard and you put in four of these uh, of the E seven four thousand processors, you get six terabytes of RAM. (laughs) <laughs> and if you have eight sockets, you could have 12 terabytes of RAM.
0: Oh, <laughs>
1: Okay, fantasy begins <laughs> right yes. now. Plus, uh, the memory bandwidth is 102 gigabytes per second. Jesus.
0: Look at this performance yeah. per watt, too. That's
1: outstanding. Exactly. So basically, they're about the same power as the old processors, but 20% faster. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, much better performance per watt. Also, you get 32 PCI Express 3.0 lanes per socket. 32? Yeah. Uh, the old was like 20, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, uh, you can get a lot more, you know, uh, 40 gigabit network cards in a machine this way or whatever you want to do. Right. Also the, uh, QPI links that connect the processor to the other subsystems on the higher end versions of these processors, uh, now goes up to 9.6 gigatransfers per second, as opposed to the old top, uh, the old top end was 8.0 and, you know, the lower end processors still are only 6.4. Uh, but. They have a new top end uh, for the amount of speed you can get over the QPI links. Hmm. And most of these processors actually have three of those. Uh, so yeah, like I said, the E7-4000 is designed for a motherboard we have four sockets, and the E7-8000 is for eight socket motherboards. Uh, the one and two socket versions have been out for a while already, uh, but they don't quite get this crazy. Uh, so. I broke down some of the different models you can get oh, yeah? and okay. how, how the features expand. Okay. Uh, there was a couple... The other big thing here is they reduced the number... Uh, as you can see in that chart just that's just going off the top of the screen now. Yeah. Uh, they reduced the number of different models. You can see how like three and four different models all collapsed into one. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know, the numbers were a little silly before and mm-hmm. it just caused stock problems, right? It's like, oh, that's the processor I want, but nobody carries it because everybody sells like three of each of those. and it wouldn't... Anyway. So the E74809 is the cheapest one, and basically you get eight cores uh, plus hyperthreading, and each core is two gigahertz, uh, and you get 20 megabytes of last-level cache. Okay. Uh, with the more standard uh, E4820 V3, you get 10 cores, but only 1.9 gigahertz, uh-huh. but you do get 25 megabytes of, of uh, last-level cache. Now both of those, because of the cheaper end ones, don't have turbo boost. Okay. But once you get up to the uh, 4830 V3, you get 12 cores at 2.1 gigahertz with turbo up to 2.7 gigahertz and 30 megabytes of last level cache. And then the uh, 4850 gives you 14 cores at 2.2 gigahertz with a turbo up to 2.8 Woo. and 35 megabytes of last level cache. Woo! Each and you're gonna put four of those in your machine.
0: I I remember how what a baller I felt like when I had 32 megabytes of RAM in my entire computer. Right. So if you,
1: if you have 14 cores plus hyper threading and four of those all four sockets filled, that's 112 cores. Mm.
0: <laughs> threads anyway. Could you imagine? what you could do yes. with that?
1: Uh, all the things. Or you can buy a low end uh, 8860, which gives you 16 cores at 2.2 gigahertz. So that's the same uh, as the 4850, except for two more cores, but same speed. But also the turbo is even higher, Hmm. uh, going up to 3.2. Actually, that doesn't look right, but maybe it is. Um, And you get 40 megabytes of of last-level cache. Then you can go up to the 8880, which is 18 cores, which is the new top of the line. So that's 18 cores plus hyper-threading times eight processors Hmm. equals 288 cores. Uh, And they have uh, the 8880 is 2.3 gigahertz up to 3.1 with turbo, and the 8890 is 18 cores each at 2.5 gigahertz uh, with a turbo to 3.3 gigahertz. I love it. Which is just crazy. And then they have special versions of the very top end processor. Uh, That they do for um, uh, database servers and stuff where, you know, maybe my load doesn't scale quite like that. So, I can't actually saturate 288 cores. Right. What I need is more speed out of fewer cores. Yeah. So, the 8891 gives you 10 cores each at 2.8 gigahertz with a turbo to 3.5 gigahertz. Or if you really need extreme and, and can uh, maximize the thermal envelope, the 8893 V3 has four cores at 3.2 gigahertz with turbo to 3.5 mm-hmm. plus hyper-threading. I wonder. Uh, so, if you, if you have a, a load that doesn't thread as well, you can do that. Yeah. Although you still, you know, it's like, oh, only four cores. That doesn't seem like very much. But four cores plus hyper-threading. Plus, yeah. the fact that you're putting eight of these in it, you still have 64 cores.
0: Yeah, that's a still that would still be, I mean, I'm and just thinking of our all, workload. Always doing 3.2 gigahertz with the ability to go up to 3.5. I wonder if some of these will eventually make it into, like, the Mac Pro-style workstations, too, that also utilize Xeon processors. Uh, well, the Mac Pros are still only
1: dual socket, though, right? So it yes, would be, right. like, the yeah. E7. It be, like, a future generation. Maybe E5 20-something, something. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think 2620 V2 and then, or V3 is is the similar things.
0: And then like the next thing I think of after that is like how long till it makes it to like the i series like in the de- like some of these things make it to the yes, i series. some of those things would be quite nice. Mhm. I'm thinking about my next build already. Man, so it's uh the uh, uh, boy the one to buy. one I really want is the e, the e uh, 7 8 8000 series. Those look like some sweet because they have the higher end clock speeds, 10 cores. Yeah, would be although, uh, the problem with that is you'd buy eight of them. Yeah.
1: And look the well, one yeah, that. You don't have to, but yeah, like if you, if you don't, then all the extra RAM slots and the extra PCI slots don't work. So, like each one uh, or two of the PCI slots will be tied to each processor.
0: Right. And if you don't fill them all and you, you have don't to get have to have use those numbers.
1: And, yeah.
0: Did you notice uh, the, uh, the E788 7 uh, ADL, the one with 18 cores? It's only 115 watts. That's amazing. Well,
1: the, there's the 8880,
0: and then there's the 8880L, right. Which is slower but uses less power. Yeah, yeah, 115 watts. That's amazing, don't you think? I think that's kind of incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they have uh, lower power ones because sometimes you know that's more important than other yeah. stuff. Yeah. The one, the other one, the higher power one uses 150 watts. So it's uh, it's 115 watts versus 150 watts for the that's a that's a decent savings. That'll get it, that'll get it cooler for you. Right. That's that's 35 watts. Yeah. It's like meh. Times
1: eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Times eight. Yeah,
0: that's exactly. two hundred
1: and eighty watts. Yeah. Plus, you'll need less fans, so that's going to save you some watts there. My bet would be and those sell more than the other If you're filling a rack with these, yeah, then that's going to make a really big difference. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All and right. So I love
1: my last comment oh, yeah. on on the that story. If you read the show notes. Oh, I'll go check.
0: Uh, I uh, Mr. Jude's uh, last oh. comment was just get want. <laughs> right? Oh, you got yep. them all listed out there. So if uh, you glazed yep. over at any of this and just want the uh, facts, Alan has the bullet points in it's the show notes. It's very easy
1: to look at them side by side yep. this way. Bust uh, all out. That is a lot even, easier. Even on the Intel Arc site, which is where I got most of the information, uh, they, they don't always have this quite level of detail. to so mm-hmm. you
0: know, Some of the features that matter to you. You want to know which ones have uh, 45 megabytes of cache? Of last level cache? Yeah. <laughs> That's not even counting the Higher levels of cash. Yeah. yeah. All right, Mr. G, you have thoughts on that story? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. All right. Well, then why don't I tell you about our friends over at IX Systems? Speaking of those great Intel Xeon processors, IX if Systems, you want
1: one of these, yeah. here is who you should go.
0: IX Systems is going to build you the best system based around those Intel Xeon processors. They have rigs that's great for like a home office all the way up to the ultimate high end, super high end stuff that they can custom build you a solution for. They can do the whole range, and they have an ex they have a whole bench of experts that truly know how to implement the best in open source technology on the best hardware. They're going to give you white glove support. They're going to pre-test stuff to make sure the hardware's not going to fail when you ship it out to your location. They're going to make sure they work with you through the process from purchase to shipping. It's a really great experience. Uh, We got to see them at Linux Fest Northwest. In fact, you hung out by their booth quite a bit. Uh, Well, actually, I went out to dinner with them after. Oh, look at you! Uh, And so that's really cool.
1: Didn't you you notice I was not out for dinner with you before the Microsoft party?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I cried. I cried. Oh, actually, sorry. it was okay though. I mean, I managed somehow. I managed. You had lots of other people. Yeah, it was pretty busy. It was pretty busy. Yes. Uh, but they have their Linux Fest Northwest uh, recap up if you guys want to check it out over at the IX Systems blog. Uh, actually, hey, look, there's our booth right there, just yep. in the corner. There's Paige actually right there. That's really cool. Uh, yep. uh, so yeah, there is. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, it, there was a. It was okay. There, uh, there's Chris and Alan sitting at the uh, sitting at the booth talking to Michael Dexter. That's yep. great. That's a great shot. Uh, don't tell anybody, but that was uh, a Linux-powered booth. But we won't. We won't mention that. We don't.
1: Have to uh, say. Well, I, uh, yes, but <laughs> as a side note, after Uh-oh. seeing that, Chris Uh-oh. has ported Open Broadcasting Software to FreeBSD, <laughs> including a bunch of fixings to the threading system. Toy, Damn it, you guys! And those changes have already been upstreamed into Open uh, uh, Open Broadcasting. That's software. awesome.
0: Hey, look at well. that! Very cool. Uh, so it's now natively works very well on BSD as well. Yep, and you guys scored some interviews for BSD Now. It was mm-hmm. really cool. So uh, go check out IX Systems If you need a system that you can count on, one where you're not going to get bounced around between the vendor and the hardware maker because they don't understand it, open source software, and truly, if you want to go with a company that has the people that are creating the technology you depend on working for them, Ix Systems is where you want to go. Go to iXsystems.com techsnap. That's our special landing page just for you. It also lets them know you heard about it here. Uh, and then you can also grab that ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. They're not going to spam you. It's just 11 key traits you must absolutely demand from your provider. ixsystems.com yep. slash. But I
1: think the, the biggest thing is that, you know, I've never built a server with four or eight processors before or with RAM that has to be on a separate daughter card. I don't know anything about that. Uh, but I know that if I need one of those, I can just talk to the people at ix and they will know all about it already. And they'll be like, oh, this is, a, you know, they won't just be like, oh, just trust us. They'll be like, all right, here's what the, the differences are. And, and, you know, they'd be able to tell me, should I use DDR3 or DDR4? And it's like, well, what are you going to do with the server? Hmm. And, you know, you yep. explain to them what you're going to do. And yep. they're like, oh, well, then you probably want to do it this way or that way. Or here's the advantage. Or here's the cost difference. And so on.
0: Alan, uh, before we run into the feedback segment, it would be probably a good time to mention uh, BSD Now episode 88, Below the Clouds. <laughs> It's about the halfway yes. mark in the show, so it's a good time to go get the HD it's version. It's a
1: great interview about Cloud ABI, which is a, basically a virtual uh, or a non-existent operating system. Uh, so that when you're compiling your software, if you cross-compile and target Cloud ABI, your binaries will work uh, eventually on most operating systems. Hmm. Uh, currently, it already works on FreeBSD and mostly works on NetBSD, but also we will have a Linux done soon. And basically, it provides a capability-based thing, kind of like uh, FreeBSD's Capsicum, but uh, a little easier to use. And basically, means you can make software where the binary will just work on multiple operating systems.
0: That is a neat idea. BSD Now, episode 88, Below the Clouds, available in HD, SD, audio, and probably even Ethereal Thought. (laughs) Sounds like a good episode, Alan. Yes, it was a very good episode.
1: Great interview. Uh, Prelude to a talk that we give given at BSDCAN.
0: Oh, Alright, so go check it out Now with the news all done, it's time we get down to the feedback Because we love getting your emails We got so, so, so many this week, Alan It is yeah. ridiculous Like, So we're only going to do, I should say, we're only going to do a batch But without any further ado, it's time for the TechSnap Feedback <laughs> Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at Broadcasting.com Or oh, popping that contact link at the top of the Jupyter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Alan, our first email this week comes in from viewer Aaron. He says, hello, Chris, Alan, and the rest of you at JB. Heller 64-Bit here, and I'm wondering about this backup solution I found for Arch. It's called System Tar and Restore. Um, it's essentially two shell scripts, one that tars up your whole rig, and then one that restores your whole rig based to the existing partition layout. I'm looking at a new way to back up uh, an Arch system that is easily to restore a system after a crash or a bad event. At the moment, I just do a simple tar of my home, Etsy, user, and assorted other directories and then simply wipe out a clean install and then replace the new dirs and configs with the old backed up ones. But sometimes, turns out, it's more time consuming and often dirty. And sometimes it was the configs that screwed things up in the first place. And mm-hmm. so I start to search the majestic Arch forum wiki and I found this system tar and restore script all uh, and so i throw myself out at the mercy of jb think tank for you guys and your opinions and thoughts on the entire matter thank you long time fan what do you think alan just um, a quick dirty backup when i first started i used something similar called flex backup mm.
1: uh, which would basically you know use the find command and a couple other things to do um incrementals and differentials and so on by a tar uh and everything uh and it was very similar uh And yeah, it mostly works. Um, Looks like it has an NCURSES dialogue interface to help step through it. Um, It kind of comes down to you have to decide one way or another. Like if you're going to reinstall the operating system, then probably you want your ETC backed up separately. And instead of just restoring it, you'll kind of cherry pick out bits and put them back. Because if you just do a fresh reinstall and then paste your old ETC over top after the reinstall that A, it might have something that was breaking your system in the first place, or B, it's just something that's not going to match up with the new install. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Uh so if you're doing a full backup where you're, you know, you have your slash bin directory and you have all the binaries backed up, then you would just splat the whole thing down, right? So then all you really need to do is get past bare metal, right? Getting up uh, the partitions and the bootloader back up and then splat the system down. And most times those are not the things that got blown up unless your problem was a hard drive failure. Mm. Um so a lot, for a lot of our setups, I would basically avoid backing up the operating system files mm-hmm. that I could just reinstall, mm-hmm. although I would back up ETC and stuff. Uh, and then later, when I had more servers, I moved to Bacula, and that gave me a lot of flexibility and so on. And you know, I can cherry pick which files to restore and restore them to a subdirectory and then manually move them back and so on. Uh, and it does a better job of deciding what to back up. and makes it easy to write rules for it. Uh, but this tar and restore thing looks pretty good. Uh, but basically it comes down to, you know, making sure you have the right scheme of differentials and incrementals and so on so that you can restore um, with the right amount of granularity, right? Like, you know, if it is a file, a change you made in ETC that made your system not able to reboot, but you made the change three days ago, if you don't have a backup from the day before that you can go back to, then your backup isn't very much used to you, is it? Mm,
0: mm. Uh,
1: and so, you know, if you do something like a, a full backup once a week and then differentials every day after that, then you can always do that.
0: So there's a, there's a, there's a couple of other rsync-based, like there's rdiff, that's a tool. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, there's rsnapshot, uh, which is our snapshot's a file system snapshot utility for making backups using rsync. I kind of like this, actually, this, this script that he has. The, from Arch is it's just a it's a, it's a pretty well done shell script basically it looks like and yeah it, uh, it, it,
1: it very much reminds me of Flex Backup which is I used more than ten years ago yeah uh, for similar
0: and I think we'd both say if you if you instead wanted to just focus like on your home directory data and, and like your dot config files in there you could probably just go with something as simple as Tar Snap because then you get it off-site, it's protected yes, but, uh, but Tar Snap is, is very good although, yeah. Yeah, uh, if you want full system restore capabilities you're probably better off with a script you found. Yeah. Uh, all right. David writes in with a, probably a pretty common question, so I'm glad we have an opportunity to answer this. He says, "I work in IT, but I am not a system administrator. I often have to work on our storage. Uh, our, oh, I'm sorry. I have to often have work. I often have to work uh, our storage engineers, and it helps for me to listen to the show and understand the capabilities of file systems like ZFS and distributions like FreeNAS and TrueNAS. so Maybe you can work with them a little easier." says, I know my company has a SAN, and they use it as a backend for all of the virtual machines. First, can you explain the difference between a SAN and a NAS? Why would I use one over the other? Is there a difference in how the disks are exposed to the system and that uses them for storage? Do you want to start there? Yeah, so
1: generally, uh, a NAS is a file server you connect to your network, whereas a SAN is a special separate network that's only used for storage. And generally, the protocols are slightly different. Oftentimes, your SAN actually is not Ethernet. There's something like a Finiband or mm-hmm. or something like that that can be faster. Although now that Ethernet is faster, it's not uncommon for them to be Ethernet. But often with a SAN, you basically expose block devices. You it basically expose a chunk of disk called an extent. Um, and then some other system uses that. So even in Windows, right? You, uh, so in a SAN, if you're using a SAN from Windows, you're going to get a device that you then format with NTFS and it's attached to one computer at a time and you can put files on it. Yeah, you do file if shares in, off that if you want. Right. Well, you don't do file shares. You, you
0: or the, I mean, use it the
1: as if it was a physical disk in from your system the Windows but it actually lives over the network.
0: Some people will share it off from yes, the Windows. I know, it, but
1: there. I'm trying to differentiate it oh, from sharing, okay. right? Because right. yeah. sharing would be with the NAS. All so right, the SAN, ahead. it's pretending like you have an extra physical disk in your system but it's actually doing block for block to a SAN uh, server over a special network that's not with your other network traffic. Okay. So it's, there's no other traffic. With your NAS, it's like a Windows file share, right? You're just accessing a file over there, and uh, you know it's it's over, you know, a Windows uh, either like uh, SMB SEMA or NFS file or, sharing or NFS or something like that. Yeah. Whereas a SAN is usually over iSCSI or something like that, mm-hmm. where you're actually dealing block for block instead of file for file. Uh
0: And with a NAS, general, you might have they're like they're not that much different. In NAS, you might have like. All of your clients connecting directly to the NAS, whereas mm-hmm. a SAN, only one machine usually connects directly to the NAS. Yes. And if that's, you want to share it from that point, That's usually the biggest thing. Yeah. With a SAN, there's only one client for each set of storage, whereas with a NAS, the whole point is multiple people sharing the same set of files. So he goes on to say, he says, I always overhear the DBA and storage team talking about LUNs. Uh, he says, I'm not sure on the spelling, but what are LUNs, and are they specific to database servers, or are they used elsewhere? So LUN is just logical unit number, uh, L-U-N, there's no D.
1: Uh, uh, so basically, the LUN is that extent. So basically, on a SAN, you have a whole bunch of storage space, and then you divide that up into separate logical units that you can then give, you know, each VM gets one LUN. Or if, you know, if it's for a deep a database, you might actually take a bunch of separate LUNs and then, and then do some kind of, like, raid mirroring between them or something mm-hmm. for speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah, basically, the LUN is the equivalent to a
0: share on a NAS,
1: but for a SAN.
0: There you go. Uh, all right, so, uh, Alan, we hmm. had, I want to say, a dozen emails about Docker this week. We had a lot of emails about Docker this week. Gor- and we have yeah. a few uh, follow-up items in our roundup this week about Docker, too. Gorlog, Gorlog wrote on the subreddit, he says, I have to defend Docker in this episode. Uh, he says, I don't think the critiques about Docker are the fault of Docker itself, but maybe the people who misuse it. I wanted, uh, he says, the first point I wanted to address is updates, security updates inside a container. He says, you can. It, the Docker uh, segment, Alan mentioned how it's uh, hard to update a Docker container. Like He pointed out how you could update a droplet on a machine, but a container would be more difficult. It's the same thing for a Docker container. You can use docker commit container name image name to create an image of your running container, and then now run a new container based on that image. So then you do a docker run dash d image name to duplicate it. You can now attach a shell inside that Docker and exec- exact that shell. And run whatever update mechanism that distribution uses to update it, like Yum or AppKit or whatever. After that, you can create a new image of that container and run it again, and then destroy the old one. What do you think? That's doable. Well, right? again, the the
1: uh, thing we were talking about, we weren't actually targeting Docker specifically. It was sysadmins being lazy because of containers, or the whole idea of DevOps, where it's actually developers that aren't sysadmins pretending to be sysadmins, and doing it badly yeah. because of their just download. Yeah, so if you're a system and you know how to use Docker, that's great. The problem is a bunch of people that don't download it, run it once, and never update it, and, and you know, so on. He has a tip there because he's like, yeah, you know, don't ever run random images
0: from the Internet. Uh, he says well, what? Yes. And so is there such thing as a Docker image that's not a random image from the Internet? Well, so he says, Should check out, out the, the Docker registry app? hub. Uh, and they're starting to sign them now at the Docker Registry Hub, so that you can know right, from so the, the, author, the Hub at least. signed it. But who
1: yeah. on the Hub verified that everything in it is perfectly special and great? I don't know if that's done before I actually, you know, knowing that it wasn't modified between the Docker Hub and me is of some use. But how did it get in the Hub, and how much checking went on before
0: they signed it? So they have, and I think maybe they're building this out still. Uh, they have mm-hmm. they have trusted builds. Uh, uh, that allows you to, you know, maybe, I don't know what makes them trusted necessarily, but they have exactly. and that's, certain that's builds that's have like a trusted problem. badge. <laughs> uh, I don't know what makes them trusted, but I could see how Docker could sort of build that out over time to, you know, mm-hmm. be like vetted or whatever. Um, yeah. But I'm not the only person, you know. Yeah. Uh, CoreOS people uh, right. have... Uh, our, uh, like, which Docker
1: is just not going to work. We're going to use Rocket instead. Although and it seems there's the a problems.
0: CoreOS had made another announcement this week regarding this, which we have in the roundup in just a little bit. So we have a couple of con- uh, container related stories in the roundup. So so stay tuned for that. Uh, but let's move over to. and we got but, uh, and, uh, anyway. This ties in. If you're interested in this
1: concept, you should definitely check out the BSD Now episode where we talk about cloud ABI and the whole idea of instead of needing something like uh, Docker to Separate the application from the rest of the system, where the actual CABI that is using via so- something like Capsicum will actually stop the application from going outside of its container. Yeah, uh, and so basically, you don't even need the container, and so you basically your your application is self-contained and can run as a regular application and can't ever touch other applications mm. on the system.
0: Mm.
1: And it basically then, then you're not dealing with a container that has other stuff in it. You just had your application, and it's isolated by itself.
0: It's quite interesting. Yeah, it is. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, we got a lot of, thank you everybody who sent in a lot of the feedback on the Docker. A lot of Docker users out there, it turns out. Um, so fell uh, placed. Phil Placer AD, I'm not even sure how to say this one. Uh, he has a concept that he wants to bounce around to kind of get clarified. He says, hello, Debian 8 was just released, and even though I could safely upgrade from Wheezy to Jesse, I figured I should take the opportunity to see over my home server setup. Uh, I've got an i5-2500K uh, with 16 gigs of RAM and plenty of services running on it, like DHCP, CUPS, LAMP, pixiebind, to name a few. The server also acts as a firewall, with IP tables, it's a gateway for my LAN. With my current setup, I've created a virtual DMZ by running the services that needs to be exposed to the internet, like Apache, Murmur, various game servers, in a virtual box VM, and then I've bridged the NICs, effectively giving the VM its own public IP address, because my IP gives me five dynamic leases. The setup has been working great, but I'd like your thoughts on the following alternatives to how to potentially set up a DMZ. Dockerize the internet facing services, expose the ports, and allow traffic to pass through the firewall. Get another dedicated NIC, configure it to obtain it on its own public IP address, and bind the services to that interface and IP, or create an alias NIC, say like ETH01, and bind the service to that interface IP. Or keep the virtual box and bridge adapter approach and run the services the same way I do now. Use another switch and a Raspberry Pi with its own IP, physically separate the services with the Raspberry Pi, or Take the opportunity to learn about VLANs and do a relevant implementation somehow because I know nothing about this or perhaps a combination or none of the above. It's a hobby Um, project. uh, So uh, a breach or misconfiguration of a kind would obviously be bad, but uh, I would not get fired. And he's got a visual too, Alan. You ready for this? Boom.
1: Wow. So yeah, um, his current VirtualBox thing seems to mostly solve the problem. Yeah. Uh, Because, yeah, um, the problem with doing something like an alias nick like E0 colon one or even just a completely separate physical NIC, is that, well, you know, Apache or Nginx or whatever he's running, is bound to the one IP. If you have WordPress installed and somebody exploits and gets the shell in, uh, in WordPress or can make WordPress run arbitrary PHP code, there's nothing stopping the process that's running on your firewall from going, reaching into your LAN and reaching a machine there where you don't want people to do that. Whereas when you have it set up on your, uh, in a virtual box, and it's bridged only, or, yeah, bridged only to the NIC that goes out to the internet, there's no way for it to get into your LAN, and you have firewall rules that say, hey, packets coming from here can't go to there. Uh, whereas the problem with running the services like this on your firewall is that you don't normally block your firewall from reaching into your LAN. But if you're going to have stuff like a web server running on your firewall, then you have that problem. And that's where uh, you can... Have advantages from doing something like the VMware. Um, for Dockerizing it, uh, VM uh, the sorry not VMware VirtualBox. Uh, having a VM is going to give you better separation than Docker, especially you know we've found lots of exploits for Docker recently. Uh, so I would stick with the VM, uh, even with jails on like FreeBSD, uh, because packets are on inside the machine. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, uh, unless you're doing image uh machine even if it's bound on an ip to only you know be on the internet facing interface it can still route over localhost to the internal interfaces mm. and then get forwarded out and yeah, so
0: yeah
1: okay uh so it depends on your configuration you can block it but it's a little tricky because you know you're
0: i i feel like i mean uh, it's a it's a good concept to kick around and it w- could be a mm-hmm. fun project so, um, but it, i feel like his current to, system works yes it does uh, so we
1: talked about a separate switch and a raspberry pi yeah that can work. Yeah. And then you It'll talk about fun. VLANs. With VLANs, if you have a switch that supports VLANs, it basically allows you to do that thing with the Raspberry Pi except not requiring another physical switch. A VLAN basically lets you just on your switch say, these ports are one switch, and these ports over here are another switch. And packets don't flow between those two switches. So I've
0: got, I got two suggestions. Uh, I mean, you're, what you're saying now, I mean, because what you're saying there is, he's, that. I think that's overbuilt. I think that's too much. I mean, it's just, that's... That's overkill for what he's doing, I think. adds complication. Uh, But you could do it.
1: The virtual machines are working great. Yeah. Although I can understand the appeal of doing a container type thing. Well, no, it's... wow. If you're doing a virtual machine, you have to give X amount of RAM to each virtual machine. Yeah, the resources. If you do a container, you can share the resources a little more better. A little more
0: better (laughs) this is more better this is what i would this is okay so this are my two points this is what i was going to take off on is keep the virtual box set up unless it's a resources and overhead thing if it is then kind of go with the combo alan's talking about or split the difference and move dhcp and bind off to a raspberry pi keep cups and lamp and and you probably have to move pixie well i would actually do it the other way leave bind pixie
1: uh, DHCP and CUPS on the router yeah. and move the LAMP stack Good. to the Raspberry Pi. Okay, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I suppose it would depend on traffic. That's
1: yeah. the one that's going to have the exploit, right? The yeah, DHCPs true, right. From that problem. standpoint, that's it's a really... It's going great. to be the, the actual I thing that, that, that actually idea. provides a service yeah. to the internet. Right. right? His, his DHCP, his Pixie, his Bind, right. well, maybe the Bind, but probably not, are the only ones that are actually, uh, are, are not actually exposed to the internet, right? People from the internet are going to want to reach the web server, not his Pixie Boot system. And so, yeah. This is basically why we recommend not running services like this on your firewall, because it's harder to block them off. Uh, But it can be done.
0: Interesting, Mr. Jude. Yeah, so for
1: my setup at home here, basically I have my firewall and it has three NICs. One goes to the internet, one goes to the DMZ, which has its own switch, uh, and then the other goes to the Homeland. And there is a VLAN there, so that stuff on my Homeland can also get into the DMZ, but that's a more complicated setup. Basically, there's one switch uh, in my rack, and that's where all the servers go, and they only have access to the internet. And then the other switch does my whole house and it's split with a VLAN, half for the office and half for my house. And then certain machines will basically get a second uh, virtual interface where they have the uh, a, a real internet IP instead of just LAN IP hmm. via the DMZ. Hmm.
0: You know what I think our friend's problem is here? He just built a really good solution. And when you're a good admin and you build a good solution, sometimes it just gets a little boring. Yeah. You build something uh, good yeah, and it works. You, uh, have, you can have fun doing the other stuff. Yeah. But. I think the Raspberry Pi would be fun, like Alan said. Yeah, I was thinking from a yeah, resources standpoint, but I like moving it off from a security standpoint. I think that's... Yeah. And if you don't have a busy the Apache The Raspberry server, Pi is probably pretty slow. Yeah, you get a Pi 2. And if, you know, if it's just your own personal website, it'd probably right. be fine. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. If you're hosting it at home, you're probably not getting a lot of traffic. Yeah. Yeah. Half the time your ISP's
0: Blockport 80 anyway. You got a hardcore intranet where you got all kinds of notes on there. Woo, yeah, I got your phone numbers and address book. That's fine. That's going to run fine on a Pi. Now, if you got, you know, 10, 15 people banging on that thing, well... Yeah. Reminds me of the...
1: When I first launched my very first website, which was a hardware review site, uh, me and my friend reviewed uh, his new video card compared to my existing one. <laughs> and we took a at the time, high-res photo. I Mm. think it was only a couple hundred kilobytes. It was was not a megabyte. (laughs) Uh, And we posted it on the website. But we hadn't finished... uh, We hadn't deployed the website to the web hosting company yet. It was still running on my 56k modem at my house. Nice. And because it was a good review of this new video card that most people... That would like just hit the market. He bought it like the day it came out. It got on some popular, popular hardware forum. And so there was like, you know, 50 people trying to download this image off my 56k modem. Brutal. Oh
0: man. Yeah. Yeah, you weren't doing much that day, were you? My 56k got slashed on it. <laughs> <laughs> the original slash dotting. Yeah, that's they're going nowhere on the internet that day. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, well, uh, we do have more emails But you can still send yours in We still want to get them, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com Or we have that contact form You just go to jupiterbroadcasting, click the contact link Be sure to choose TechSnap from the drop down Or, if you don't want to make a mistake And maybe you could get other folks to answer as well Just go over to the subreddit, textnap.reddit.com, And then the community can give you their insights And we'll answer it on a future show But with the email all done, that means it's time For the TechSnap Roundup! Welcome to the TechSnap round Yeah, Yeah, that crazy music means now the roundup of stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show but we still wanted to give you some links to follow up on on your own after the show and some of these links came from our fantastic subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com and uh, the first one I grabbed because uh, well we talk about WordPress flaws since WordPress is such a popular publishing platform and this one seems to be I guess exploited right now as we're on the air. Have you heard much about this one Alan? Uh. Really, there are so many of them I don't know which I know one. I really I really kind it's, of just tune them out but ours has got a great write up it's uh I guess they say it's a cross site scripting vulnerability that resides in the a, a, a genericious pa- a, a genera- gener icons package I'm mean, probably gener icons I don't know Alan Oh uh, okay. it's part so of it's, WordPress and is it something that is actually built in or something that people have to install ours says it away. comes bundled with WordPress Okay
1: yeah, uh, uh, yeah and and there's already an update active being uh, actively being exploited yes. and putting lots of sites at risk Yes so the proof of concept, there's a proof of concept out there. Uh, At LinuxFest Northwest, we learned that the front page of Microsoft.com is a WordPress blog.
0: No. Yep.
1: Shut up. Although I think they might be smart enough to run it on like a read only file system or something.
0: <laughs> Hold on. You're telling me Microsoft.com is WordPress? Uh, apparently. There some the, remember they had the the Microsoft <coughs> Debian booth. Yeah, oh, like I, know, it, I know. I so. know. Oh, I know they were there, yeah. Huh. Well, I'll look into that. That's impressive. I guess it doesn't surprise me that much they use WordPress, but uh, and I could see that they would be there kind of uh, bragging about it because that's what they were there for. Uh, okay, you grab this story about this wormhole, this, wormhole, this Windows kernel exploit. Uh, what do we know about this, Alan? Well, so this isn't actually
1: a new exploit. What this is okay. is a driver you install called the Haxis Extreme Vulnerable Driver. Oh, I like it. Which is vulnerable on purpose uh, to allow you to learn how the vulnerabilities work. Cool. So, basically, you're installing this driver that has vulnerabilities so that you can then exploit the vulnerabilities to learn how vulnerabilities work. <laughs> uh,
0: hey, why not, right? You got to learn yeah. somehow.
1: And so, this is basically an overview of how to use it to cool. actually
0: uh, learn about it's vulnerabilities available to the, in Windows. It's available to the public? Uh, apparently. Apparently, it is, yeah. It's cool. like it comes with the instructions. <laughs> nice. Go hack yourself a Windows installation, everybody. Uh, all right. Well, then. Yeah, so uh,
1: basically, what you do is you have two Windows machines. One's the debugger and one's the debuggy. So you're using the one machine to watch the other machine and then exploiting that machine and watching how it happens.
0: Uh, let's so let's It uh, looks like an interesting thing to have in your little uh, test lab. We should hone in now, Alan, on our next roundup story. Speaking of online pharmacies, right? Mm
1: hmm. Uh,
0: so there's an online pharmacy called pillpack.com.
1: Uh, and so apparently, the way it works is there's some. Super secret. Nobody knows about API or service or something uh-huh. that the pharmacies use <laughs> to get the information from your doctor about your prescription and also, as mandated by the US government, to make it so that you can switch pharmacies if you want. Okay, So that your prescription isn't necessarily tied to the, the yeah. first place right. you went to or whatever. Okay, uh, So there's pillpack.com where you can go. And you put in your information and they pull up your prescription history in order to allow you to get your prescriptions from them. The problem is they don't do very much in the way of identity verification. Mm. So this has been fixed now, mm. but because uh, this what we're reading here is actually the vulnerability disclosure after it was fixed. Okay. Um, the researcher found that if you went to the website and typed in any person's name, their full name and had their real birth date, he could see all of their active prescriptions. No. And sometimes their prescription history.
0: So, like a public figure that where that would be public information.
1: Or everybody, where you anybody whose birthday you knew, basically. But too ah, bad we didn't know about this until doing. now.
0: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> would have been could have had some fun with that.
1: <laughs> I've, I haven't had a prescription in a long time. but well, yeah, yeah,
0: no, no, yeah, but still. But,
1: uh, yes, this is obviously horrible. And so now, while PillPack has has fixed the vulnerability via their site by making actually manually verifying some other information. It seems that the pharmacy looks up your information using only those two things. Well, it, it seems to me, A, that there could easily be two people with the same name and birth date. Sure, sure. You know, there are a lot of common first names and last names, yeah. and then a common birth date on top of that is not an impossible thing. Name and birth date is definitely not enough information to uniquely identify someone's prescription, where you want to make sure you're not giving them the wrong amount or the wrong <laughs> medicine or yeah. something, right? Yeah. Or, you know thinking they have the ro- an, an allergy, they don't, or worse, not knowing that they have an allergy, and so on. Uh, so while they've fixed this one site, it seems that the system that pharmacies use is ripe for abuse and is not secure and has yeah. any I mean, obvious it, problems. It
0: sounds like if it thinks you're an authorized user, then you just get to pull any information you want.
1: Yes. And so apparently if you go start a random website called you know pillpusher.com, you can get access to this thing and just... Start farming out people's information.
0: <laughs> hmm.
1: Anyway, uh, you can read the whole vulnerability
0: thing over on the, the blog there. Interesting find, Alan. Interesting find. Yes. Uh, all right. We have an uh, article from hackertarget.com on quietly mapping the network attack surface. Yes. Ooh. So this is basically all the
1: things you can find out about a company's network without ever actually doing anything that resembles a scan. Like, first, if you just look up their SPF record, or sender policy framework, uh, so that's a DNS record that um, gets looked up automatically by mail servers all the time, and basically what it uh, does is a company can publish a list of IP addresses that mail that they send will come from, so that if you ever send mail that's from a different IP, it's like, oh, that's probably a spammer pretending to be the real me, right? Right. So scale engine has an SPF record and it's, these are the IPs of the scale engine mail servers mail sent by anyone other than those is probably spam. Well, if you use that, then now you can sometimes see the IP addresses of, of related systems and networks, right? Cause you know, you know, the IP address of the mail server for, you know, example.com mm-hmm. But their SPF record might give you hints of. Here's some other networks that are part of our company that are maybe trusted by our internal systems, right? So you know, if their web page is really hardened down because they're preparing, you know, expecting to get attacked, but you know, they have some system over here that's trusted, and if you break into it, then you could just walk in through the firewall to <laughs> they, they hardened the hardened system because you're coming from a trusted network. Mm. And they also mentioned, you know, if you connect to the mail server and you get the banner message that comes up, you could usually figure out what OS and mail server they're using. And maybe that gives you information about what their servers look like or, you know, a list of what vulnerabilities they might be exposed to and so on. Or looking, uh, looking up their name servers and where those are hosted and mm-hmm. uh, even attempting to do a, a, a zone transfer which actually could let you download their entire DNS zone file if they haven't locked it down properly, and then you would find the IP address and host name of every machine in their network, possibly. And, you know, just looking at the forward and reverse DNS for all their ranges of IPs, you might figure out stuff because, you know, oftentimes people will name their server something that tells you what it does. Yeah,
0: sure. And all of a sudden, oh,
1: so there's the IP address for their server that does this.
0: Yeah, you yeah, Seattle uh, Mail Server, Seattle Web Server, Seattle Database yeah.
1: Server. Things like that. Yep. Uh, and then they also say, uh, if you know IP addresses and stuff, you can go over to scans.io and, and search for host names that are related and stuff. Or you know, like we mentioned, the zone transfer and stuff. Or you can go over to Shodan and do identity. Uh, so you can search based on the IP addresses and see what services are running. right? Because Shodan basically uh, indexes all those banner messages from all the services. So if you know a net block belongs to the company you're targeting, you can find out all the services that are running on all their different machines yeah. and yeah. what versions they're using and oh, all yeah. that stuff. Oh yeah. You know, you can also obviously scan their IPs, but that's active and yeah. might get detected. Yeah. But you can also use scans.io to search scans that have been done by other people mm. and are indexed so that you don't have to do your own new scan. Ooh. Which is also faster and doesn't, you know, set off any alerting system yes, or whatever. Exactly. Uh, huh. and then You know, if you know where their website's hosted, you can search their website for related domains and other things that link to their website. If a site links to their website, maybe it's related. You can find stuff out. Uh, You can figure out what CMS they're using, right? By active fingerprints in the HTML. You know, oftentimes WordPress, there'll be certain words or say, you know, powered by WordPress at the bottom of the page or something. That means that it's WordPress or, you know, yeah, often gives WordPress the themes, if you use a free WordPress theme, often it puts a little tagline, even if it's just a comment in the HTML, New not themes. visible, that tells you, hey, it's hey, this is WordPress theme X. Well, yeah, yeah. probably means they're running WordPress. Um, there's also <laughs> uh, WhatWeb, which can help you figure out what something is running.
0: There's uh, there's uh, I, I, uh, I got an email from uh, 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 a listener who's got a uh, company that does like an online password database that uh, it's sort of along these same lines it's uh, it's sort of like they've built it so you don't have to i think we might be talking about it more in the future and it's if it it's in line with these kinds of tools and people are building more and more all the time and I'll, uh, for some reason apparently there's a bing ip address search
1: oh really i don't know what that does but you can uh you know figure out where it's hosted related stuff uh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know you can do brute force against common domains you know Figure out, oh, well, if they have www.example.com, there's probably a mail.example.com. There might be an ftp.example.com. You know, lots of things like that. Also, things like NetCraft might have a history of what web servers they've been using in the past and so on. And, you know, banner grabs
0: on the web server. Lots of different things you can use to figure out what's happening there. Mr. Jude, let's shift gears. Um, We had a huge roundup today. Uh, This seems like today TechSnap has had, like, Really bad news for the medical industry, and not like the bogus, like cyber threat stuff, but like records and hard to track breaches. And, and now we have a national cyber awareness bulletin about these infusion pumps uh, that could have yep. software vulnerabilities. Uh, like, like, like the like pumps that are inf- like putting stuff into people's bodies. This is horrible. Yeah. Uh, it allows rem- remote attackers to gain root privileges via port twenty three. Yeah, you guessed it, Telnet. Uh, software version four one two does not require authentication for Telnet sessions for the Hospera LifeCare infusion so, so yeah. so pumps. So I don't
1: know if it's over Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or something, and what the range is or anything like that. But you basically can just Telnet into this thing and log in root password blank, and you're in.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty bad. Hey, uh, okay, next one: the Boeing seven eighty seven seven eighty seven Dreamliner, which is uh, a, a local. Uh, a, a, a big local story here in Washington, contains mm-hmm. a potentially catastrophic software bug.
1: Um, yeah, so there's a control software that controls the generators that are part of the engines. I think each engine has two generators, mm-hmm. uh, and these uh, so that if one dies, everything's okay. And each one of those has a control unit. Uh, or maybe there's one generator per engine and there's two control units. Anyway, um, apparently if the generator control unit is left running for 248 days of uptime, it will then crash.
0: Yeah, the generator and shuts so down.
1: Both of them will crash at the same time and the generator shut down, and all the power in the plane will go out and yep. the plane will fall out of the sky. Yeah, and it seems to be a software bug. Yeah. Uh, most likely, it's uh, uh, integer overflow. Yeah. Basically, if you have a 32 bit signed <laughs> integer, it will, uh, and if you go up by centiseconds or hundredths of a second, uh, 248.55 days is where that would overflow. And yeah, so it basically keeps going up, and then, uh, because uh, sign numbers are stored in a computer in binary, right? And so they use the very most important digit, the, uh, the furthest one over, to be the plus minus sign, right? Uh, so if it's zero, it's positive, and if it's one, that means it's negative. And so when you're <coughs> counting up, you, you know, you have, it, it works like an odometer in a car, right? Mm-hmm. Except for it only has one or zero. So you have 0 is when you start, and then 1. And then when you shake it over, it becomes 1, 0. And then 1, 1. And then 1, zero, zero, And it keeps ticking up. Well, eventually when you get to the biggest possible number you can express in 31 bits, when you add 1 to it, you actually end up with uh, flipping the, the bit for the positive and, negative, and then you start going up. Or the other way around. Uh, so basically, after you go 1 over the maximum number, you get
0: the largest possible negative number. That's and, a, <laughs> yeah, wow. causes problems you know what Boeing's uh, so Boeing is obviously working on a software fix I mean, remember the streamliners had battery issues this is a brand new yeah. plane uh, and, and right and now no, no 747
1: has ever been left running for 248 days well, this only uh, Boeing found it themselves in their test lab where they left the generator control computer running for that long and figured out what the problem was and,
0: and to prevent it from happening Boeing just recommends in the meantime just turn the plane off and back on again
1: uh, yeah. So basically, uh, the FAA has put out a directive requiring all airlines to reboot their <laughs> Boeing 787s at least once every so many months. Turn it off and on uh, again. So that they won't uh, get to this magic marker. Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, so I don't really have a lot to say about this next story, but Microsoft uh, is getting big into cybersecurity and it's rolled out some advanced threat analysis tools. Uh, it's like ours, Technica calls it our RAFT of security and data protection software at the Ignite conference, which is going on right now. Uh, They have a couple of different tools they're putting out there, so you guys can go check it out. Microsoft's getting big in this. Like like I said, I don't have a lot to add here other than Microsoft's planning to make some big moves across, like, whole network orchestration. So you find a a threat, and then you reconfig the network from servers to switches and routers and firewalls all on one go. It's kind of a cool system. But... I'll leave that to the exercise of the reader. Hey, Alan, let's talk about uh, how to make two binaries with the same dang MD5 hash. What? Uh, So
1: previously it showed, uh, um, this guy had wrote a blog post about doing how to make two PHP scripts the same thing, Mm. but that wasn't really impressing many people. (laughs) Uh, So this one basically shows how to make two different C binaries uh, that have exactly the same MD5 hash. Uh, the general idea is, you know, when you're downloading important software, you're supposed to do the MD5 hash, make sure it didn't get corrupted or modified uh, in transit. And basically, what he does is is this is especially important for open source with mirrors, right? Mm. So if you're downloading a mirror, uh, if you're downloading GPG from a mirror, uh, you want to make sure that the copy on that mirror is the same as the one on the official website or whatever, right? Uh, and so, but. Uh, MD5 is vulnerable to what's known as the birthday attack, where when you know the two starting points, you can just do some math and find the point at which these two will intersect and cause a collision. Mm. So he has uh, some C code here that basically defines a a constant called dummy. That's just the letter A repeated a whole bunch of times. And then it does a comparison of that whole string ending with an A uh, or that whole string ending with a B. And if those two strings are, uh, come out to be equal, then uh, if they come out not to be equal, then draw an angel on the screen. And if they are equal, draw a devil on the screen. So when you run it, it will always draw an angel because A is not equal to B. Uh, but then he runs it through this little script here that finds an MD5 collision. Mm. Uh, and it basically replaces that long string of a's at the top of the application with two different random strings, such that the m d five hash of the compiled program will come out to be the same. and now, when you run it, it becomes it, it prints out a devil instead of an angel <laughs> or or sorry you yeah. get two uh, when you're done, you get two applications, one called angel, one called devil, yeah uh, <clears throat> both of which have the same m d five hash, but the code inside has been modified so that one of them. Uh, works and one of them doesn't. Hmm. And so now you have two binaries that uh, if you're using an MD5 to verify would both say exactly the same but when you run them, they do different things.
0: Yeah. That guy looks, you take off the horns, I'd almost think he's Mr. Spock not the devil. (laughs) If he had took off the horns. That's interesting, Alan. Good find. Nice follow-up too. Uh, all right. So this is uh, one for you Docker fans out there. Docker, uh, two days ago, made a blog post saying understanding Docker security and best practices. And essentially what it comes down to is there's going to be uh, a couple of bits of information coming out. And one of them is a book, two books, I think, actually. And the one you're going to want to look for is Introduction to Container Security. Uh, this is, it's a paper though, not a book. And it explains how the first one's a book. This one's a paper explains how containers work and what it means for application isolation and operational security It's the foundation for understanding how the engine works under the hood. And, uh, then they have learned more about Docker. They have some, uh, an online tutorial in about 10 minutes. And they also recommend people check out the security page. I, this is interesting. I think Docker is feeling a little bit of the heat. Uh, so they've been, uh, they've been sort of trying to address some of this. And then we have, uh, so we have a book coming soon on it, or, and and also the white paper. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And the security section on their wiki yep. has been updated. <clears throat> I know. They hear it. They hear it. Um, and we have a little more container stuff coming up. But first, let's talk about Netflix. What's this Netflix uh, GitHub repo about here, Alan? What do we got here?
1: Yeah. Uh, so uh, if you remember when we were talking uh, earlier in the story about cybersecurity and the, that silly article about the... Um, the uh, tools the to pros use or whatever, uh, we kind of talked about how what you really need is this equivalent of a cybersecurity fire alarm, an alarm that only goes off when there's actually a fire, mm. that kind of filters out all these notifications and stuff and only uh, gets the attention of a human when the attention of a human is actually required. Right? Software cannot ever protect your network from everything, but what you really want is software that gets you involved only when you need to be so that you don't get alert fatigue right Uh, so uh netflix has released their thing called fido the fully integrated defense operation (laughs) Uh, and basically what it does is it integrates and automates the manual human process of codifying the logic and process used by threat uh, analysts to provide consistent and reliable results basically taking in the information from all your monitoring alerting systems and and from you know, those incoming attacks and all those different things, and putting it together into one system and only calling your attention to it when it's required. So it uses uh, a bunch of different detectors, uh, including uh, Carbon Black, Cyfort, uh, ProtectWise, Sentinel-1, Bit9, uh, hmm. Palo Alto, uh, FireEyes, MPS and MAS, SourceFire, Sophos, uh, Bro, and Snort. So it takes information from all those different uh, detectors and then puts it together, makes a database, and then only sends alerts out to you when it's actually a high enough chance of a problem uh, that you want to get a human involved. Right? So it's like, oh, Bit9 has detected this banned file. And oh, it it came in way it shouldn't. That file shouldn't be, and and you know, so you don't get uh, an alarm going off every time somebody has a file they're not supposed to have. But when a file shows up where it shouldn't be, in a bunch of other things, uh, you know, it's basically turn down the amount of information you're mm. you're sending to the humans so that only the useful ones get through. hmm Is that? Do you think such a thing is possible?
0: Um, it
1: seems like they've got the right approach here.
0: Okay. All right, I would love to see it, Ellen. All right. <clears throat> so we said there more some... screenshots if you
1: look at the example alert. Uh, oh, they if do? you go into their wiki. Oh, 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 I was I was tooling around on the GitHub page. I, oh, yeah, yes, uh, they on do. The, Yeah, on the GitHub page at the bottom there's a link to a wiki and then if you oh. on along the sidebar, uh, if you go to mm-hmm. example alerts, fourth from the bottom on the sidebar,
0: example alert. And then there's a graphic. That's not bad. Yeah,
1: it's not overly snazzy, but it is. I kind of like it. Exactly so. what you want. <clears throat> exactly.
0: It's like a heat level, like a temperature of uh, of almost, or like a like a levels, or I like that. That's oh. cool, Netflix. Boy, wouldn't this be neat? And you know, if anybody's gonna have this figured out at scale, a company like Netflix is gonna be it. So, exactly. and you can
1: see they're using a lot of other detectors, right? Yeah, Bit
0: 9, Sentinel One, Protecta, okay. Fire. All right, on. all right. You know what? I don't know when I see it and it's it doesn't like because it seems like this big imaginary concept. But then when you see it, it's actually kind of it, I, the clunkiness almost makes me feel like it is more of a real thing. Yeah, well, basically, it's just
1: aggregating information from a bunch of sensors Mm -hmm. and only bothering to bother you when a bunch of them agree
0: that there's a problem. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk more about containers. Uh, So CoreOS Fest was just going on, and it seems like Docker was the awkward elephant in the room at the Fest. Uh, That's according to... In in previous times, Docker would have been the center of the CoreOS Fest, and this time they were uh, conspicuously not there. uh, Right, because... Docker not only announced Rocket, or I'm sorry, CoreOS not only announced Rocket, but they've also just recently announced their own app container spec, app a, a, APPC, which competes directly with Dockers. And they're, and the guy behind CoreOS, who I've talked to, I've interviewed before, has been, even though he's been on the board of Docker, is critical of Docker's security uh, so CoreOS Fest uh, had prominent companies there, uh, Google, Intel, Red Hat, Twitter, VMware, uh, lots of others, lots of uh, speakers most reluctant to trash Docker. Uh, uh, Google seemed to actually have some praise for go- uh, Docker, but otherwise he was, Docker was kind of the awkward guy there. And it's interesting to see CoreOS coming out with their own universal spec and uh, all that stuff. The the, uh, container wars remain interesting. Okay, Alan, are you ready for our next roundup story? This one is from the lab of a penetration tester. Hey, look at this. Windows passwords. Yay, dumping user passwords in plain text on Windows 8.1 and server 2012. Yeah, that's nice. So apparently if you just add one specific um, registry entry on Windows
1: 8.1, it will store passwords in plain text. Brilliant. Uh, So he's got a little bit of uh, PowerShell script here. You run it. And then uh, it sets itself up, so you run it and then lock the machine, and when the person walks over to the machine and unlocks it with their password, it will automatically fire off uh, the second half of your PowerShell script,
0: capture their password, and send it to you. Or save it for you. Of course it's just one flag in the registry. What else would you want? Silly. Set that with a PowerShell script. you set
1: this up on somebody's computer and you can basically, if they ever leave their computer unlocked long enough for you to go in there, run the PowerShell command, then uh, when they next time they unlock
0: it, then you'll get their password. I bet In they have text. to be local admin on the windows rig for the script to be able to change the registry. but um, a lot of people run as local admin maybe yeah, yeah. Uh, I just,
1: this well, is for windows
0: 8.1 that's usually yeah the one user machine right this is just uh, I, you know this happens, but uh, I don't know it's it text now we got it, did you hear about the system crash at Starbucks no. uh, yeah the in-store payment system at Starbucks went down f- last Friday. Um, 8,000 company-operated stores in the United States and Canada were offline. It actually, had they, Starbucks, though, kind of good-guy Starbucks, ended up just giving away some of the coffee at some of the stores. The company said the failure was caused not by hackers, but by a problem during a daily computer system update. A daily computer system update. Isn't that interesting? The chain said late Friday that it was still working to resolve the problem, which affected the chain's Fresh and Geneva stores. Uh, the funny, because people on Twitter started calling it hashtag the <laughs> Yeah. One guy said, I went to my local Starbucks. Their registers are offline, so free drinks until they fix the problem. Hashtag customer service, hashtag win. (laughs) There you go. I guess you can turn a computer outage into a marketing opportunity. Hey, Alan, uh, I'm not done with CPU talking. Give me a little L3 cache mapping on Sandy Bridge CPU goodness, please.
1: Uh, Yeah, so uh, they did a little research paper here uh, to figure out – so basically on the older ivory bridge uh, processors they'd figured out how to do a practical timing side channel attack against kernel space ASLR hmm. uh, but with sandy bridge and newer processors the cache mapping is slightly different and so this guy did some work to try to figure out how it works and uh, basically found that by kind of brute forcing picking through different uh, physical address memory sizes and so on you can from these graphs, see what the difference is and see if he's hitting
0: the alignment or not. Hmm. So address space layout randomization is what we're talking about here.
1: Well, it's uh, being able to get around it or do a side
0: channel right. against it. Yeah. And so they changed. Uh, so it, it sort of changed now with Sandy Bridge. So is it's not happening yeah, so at Sandy the Bridge's OS the level processor anymore?
1: The is, uh, well, no, sorry. Uh, so ASLR is in the operating system. Yeah. But, because of the way the cache works in the (coughs) physical processor, there was a way to get around ASLR. Oh, gotcha. Okay, I'm tracking. And then the newer processor, because they changed the way the cache worked, the workaround for ASLR didn't work. And Mm -hmm. so they're trying to figure out how the layout is on the newer processor so they can, again, have an exploit against ASLR.
0: Got to get that exploit. All right. Uh, Google can't ignore the Android update problem any longer. This is an op-ed over at Tom's Hardware, kind of echoing Mm -hmm. a sentiment that we've been saying for a while. And, boy, with Google I.O. just a couple of weeks away, wouldn't it be amazing to hear how they're going to solve this problem? That would really be a game changer. The biggest thing is, I think, even if they come up with a solution, it's mostly going to have to be from now on. And and yeah. not
1: easily going to be able well. And to, here's the problem. I suppose
0: they could, but here's the problem. And and how do you how do you not consider this to be a huge failure? Lollipop is. is almost a year old, and it's on ten percent of it? devices. How is that that that's pathetic? Well, I imagine part of it is because the hardware
1: requirement for it means that it only runs on devices that are that new, and people don't replace their phone as often as they used to, right? If you're comparing the adoption of this against like the adoption of Android two point x then, yeah, it's going to look bad, but it's because the people on Android 4.X, their phone isn't too old yet, and it still works. If it wasn't for the security problems, then, you know, everybody would be actually quite happy about the fact that, you know, people aren't cycling their phones as quickly as they used to.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I guess. uh, So right now it looks, I'm looking at iOS 8 adoption right now, is uh, iOS 8 is at 84.33%. But the difference is because you, if you had an older iPhone, it got upgraded as well. Yeah.
1: Whereas if you have an older Android phone, it didn't get the update.
0: Yeah, So, and I, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, mm-hmm. but obviously that has major security ramifications. You can't fix it all through the Play API. But the secondary thing it does is uh, the, the reason why that also sucks is developers can't target the features in Lollipop because they can't depend on the user base having them. So they can't yep. move it forward as fast as they can on iOS. Well, and it's one of the reasons why iOS gets applications first because mm-hmm. the newer API set is available to a larger percentage of the user base. Well, and like the, I don't know, the newer Android stuff looks so much nicer yes, than the older stuff. it's a much better system. So it's very, uh, it's, it's, so from, there's a lot of reasons why it just irks me. And I'd love to see yep. them do something about this. Uh, yeah, okay. <clears throat> All right. Uh, next story. In the Roundup, researcher finds a method to bypass Google password alerts. Dun, dun, dun. From Dennis Fisher over on ThreatPost.com. Yes. Yeah, so this is a,
1: a plug for Google's Chrome that's supposed to tell you when your password is being misused or whatever. Yeah, I heard about uh, this. And the researcher found a, a, a way to get around it uh, using a race condition or something. And uh, Google quickly fixed that. But now we found a new one and
0: doesn't think Google's going to be able to fix that very quickly. (laughs) I just heard about that extension just like yesterday, I think. Yeah. Uh, Here's a bombshell. I don't know if I even believe it. It's such a bombshell. Windows 10 to kill off Patch Tuesdays. Yeah, so uh, desktop users... (laughs) Hold on, Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Sorry to interrupt you, but this is really good. The register.co.uk, their sub-headline for this article. Did you read this? No. (laughs) New policy on app get update and app get dist upgrade for microsoft. <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten
1: the joke, so.
0: Okay. Yeah, come on, it's a good uh, joke.
1: I, I just don't get it. Yeah. Is all. all right. <laughs> um so um uh, the basic idea is that instead of waiting until the next patch Tuesday, updates will go up more quickly, which is good. Yeah. Um uh, and corporations will get more choice over how to deploy it. So, if you're using like the Windows Update service thingy for Windows Server uh, for Windows Domain deployments, uh, you basically basically be able to have your own policy where you can be like, "Well, we're going to test it in lab, and once we're sure, we can roll it out." And the general idea from Microsoft seems to be, "Let us test it on the home users for a while first, and then once we're sure it's not breaking everything, then you can deploy it to all the corporate networks." Yeah,
0: in a way, though, was a business. I kind of like that. Yeah. So as as the end user getting the update thanks for that. It's interesting though to see them walk this back, right? Because Patch Tuesday became a thing because too frequent of updates was hard for the enterprises to manage. Now we're going to see is it hard for users to manage. And will they do, <clears throat> will it really be all updates or will they reserve some things at scheduled releases? I imagine
1: uh, oftentimes it'll be something like a Patch Tuesday, but yeah. for critical stuff it will it will be less of an exception to just get that out to people quicker.
0: Yeah,
1: And I think in the end that's actually a good thing. Getting yeah. the patches out to people quicker is good as long as they don't break stuff routinely. Now, you had one thing you added to the end of the roundup yes, there, Yes, right? this is just a note I saw in a secret place. Okay. Uh, but an unnamed previous D developer mentioned that he found a place, uh, he doesn't work there, but he's aware of a place now, where an ex-employee had went into their source code repository, checked out the distribution tarball of free IPMI, which is a software set you use to control servers, right. unpacked it, edited some make files and stuff, Retarded up and checked it back into the repo with the same name. Mm. So basically, they had a repo where they keep cache of the software they use for everything, for their deployment scripts and so on. And when he didn't work there anymore, they didn't withdraw his credentials
0: mm-hmm.
1: or revoke his credentials. Not too surprised. So he was able to go in there and basically plant a back door in their management software and then check it back in. And who knows how long it's been yeah. with no one noticing That's until That's a now.
0: nice spooky reminder that to- Close those things off when you leave, when people leave, or you, yeah. you make them leave, and it's good if you have a way to manage and track it, like a checklist or something. Because yep. I, I bet you, I guarantee you, you know, in my the, last the Pass, repo
1: where you keep the uh, the tools for your DevOps or whatever is probably not in most of those checklists from <laughs> HR or even <laughs> the
0: regular IT department. Right, I guarantee you, I guarantee you my LastPass database has. Probably client passwords and logins that would probably still work. I've never even tried them. I've been mm-hmm. deleting a lot of that stuff over time too, as I come across it now, because I just think some of it just might like, still. This is just in my way or yeah, whatever. It might still work, and I just don't want it either. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, all right. So uh, that roundup was massive, and uh, you can you can make a story show up in our roundup or even maybe in the higher uh, news section of the show by going over to techsnap.reddit.com and submitting something to our subreddit. Their feedback stories, actually, just voting and commenting also helps quite a bit. Now, don't forget the TechSnap shows live on Thursdays. We do. Do this at one PM Pacific on Thursdays, which is yes. uh four PM Eastern 200 UTC. Boom. Boom. Uh, also, jblive.info is available for the audio-only streams of this show. We have RSS feeds you can subscribe to to get the download version uh, Im- Im- immediately available depending on your podcast catcher. And uh, I would I would actually really invite you to join us live, though. I think that's a great experience because we interact with the chat room during the segment breaks. We're taking questions. Uh, like, Heller64 was in there uh, giving us additional information about his feedback question. So it's kind of a cool thing if you send an email into the show and you show up live, too. Sometimes you can give us a little bit more info if we're searching around for stuff. So it's a great experience. But, of course, it is always available on demand. And in all kinds of formats from all different kinds of places. You guys know all about that. Something I don't say too often is uh, if you really love the TechSnap show, I would invite all of you to uh, go find the MP3 feed in iTunes and leave a comment and a rating. If we all concentrate on one feed, that maybe will help the, the algorithms a little bit find that. And that, that moves us up in the uh, search ranking so then other people can find the TechSnap program. I know you're probably not a big iTunes user. A lot of you aren't. But those of you that have it installed, or have a device that has access to it, like an iOS device, uh, you could help the show be discovered by new listeners by going into iTunes and let's all f- let's all just pick on the MP3 feed because then it concentrates it instead of spreading it out. And uh, you might be able to move the dial for the TextNet program and have some people new find new people find us. It'd be really cool, and we really we really do appreciate it because it only takes. Well, it takes about 25, 30 of you, which is more than you'd think they'd actually ever do it. So I do appreciate it when you get a chance. Just search for TechSnap on iTunes and put a review in a comment. I don't ask too often. It helps a lot, but I know it's kind of tedious. So I do appreciate it if you can. All right. Well, enough asking. We'll just leave it right there. You send us your feedback and uh, then join us live next week and we'll wrap it up. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. See you next week.